Hello, Mosaic. It is my honor to be able to welcome you as we gather for worship. My name is Doug Rains, and I get to work with Global Outreach uh, with Mosaic. In our study in, Attic, in Acts last week, Colin uh, reminded us about how the church at Antioch became a gospel-multiplying church. And they did this by not only reaching their city uh, with the gospel, but also by sending people out to take the gospel where it wasn't. We've been hearing stories about how you guys have done such a great job of loving and serving and sharing Jesus with your neighbors. And tonight I wanted to share some stories with you about how we have some Mosaic family that's doing that very same thing around the world. Stu and Hillary have been in the UK for, for eight years. They work in a neighborhood that's incredibly diverse and uh, there's almost no believers in that neighborhood at all. And so they've been able to find ways to serve their hurting neighbors recently through uh, working in a food bank and through a community garden. And they also lead in what they call Bible chats where they gather people around the word of God and they just dig in to see and discover what God has said. And then Stephen and Melissa have been in Southeast Asia for five years now. They had to come home because of Melissa's mother uh, was ill and eventually passed away. But while they've been here, they've been able to maintain connections with the local believers that they've been able to reach. And they've, over the years they've been there, they've seen the gospel go into churches be planted in places where they've, and among people where they've had no believers at all. And through their connections with these local believers, they've been able to connect uh, your generosity to those local believers. And those local believers have been able to take food to people who've been struggling to find ways to feed their family. And as they took the food, they prayed and they shared stories of Jesus. And now people who were never open to the gospel are asking these local believers, could you come back and could you tell us more about Jesus? Eric and Julie work with an organization that focuses on sending people to places uh, to create scripture where they have no scripture at all in their language. And because these countries have been closed due to the virus, Eric said he has had more time to coach his people and spend more time praying with them and praying for them. And he feels like now when these countries are opened up, they'll be even better prepared than they would have been before. David and Monica lead a church in Turkey. And when the virus closed down their city, they weren't able to meet for worship anymore. And so they decided they would start recording and streaming online services. And as a result, They've had people who would never set foot in a church, never come to a worship service, who've been watching their services regularly all over the country. And just recently, they were able to baptize three uh, men who, is, who are now new followers of Jesus. Our hoops team works in West Africa. And they had to come home early because of the virus. And they were doing Bible studies with several groups there. And they weren't able to finish those Bible studies. But when they got here, they were able, uh, using technology, to stay in contact and to finish those Bible studies. And they've actually seen people come to faith in Jesus and, and seen people grow in their faith during this time. Seth and Kayla have been in Serbia for uh, just a little over two years, I think. And uh, Serbia is one of those countries that they went into a complete lockdown very early. And Seth and Kayla really struggled with now they couldn't have any contact with any of the people that they had gone there to work with. So they decided they would just gather their team every day and pray for their friends and their neighbors. And as the country has opened up, they're now seeing those neighbors they've been praying for every day with new eyes. And they have a, re a renewed and a refreshed vision for ministry where they are. And then Sydney is working with college students in Montenegro. And of course, the, uh, the virus caused everything to change and the ministry they were doing and, and all of that change and uncertainty are the things that we've had to deal with and Sydney's had to deal with those as well. But she's been able to find ways to connect with her friends and spend time with them and actually use that change and that uncertainty and the struggles that she's had as an opportunity to share with them how Jesus has helped her through that. Now, I'll tell you these stories for a couple of reasons. One, I just want you to know who our Mosaic family is that's working around the world to share the gospel and, uh, and encourage you to be praying for them. But secondly, I wanted you to hear how God continues to work, just like he did in the book of Acts. 
And there's no persecution or distance. There's no virus. There's no economic upheaval that will ever stop his work. And he is doing just as much now as he's ever done. And we get to celebrate and rejoice to be a part of that. And I wanted to share that with you. In our study tonight, one of the themes that we're going to notice in the scripture is that God's people were praying. And we'll see that repeated uh, a few times in the scriptures. And our global workers would all tell you that the most important thing we can do to partner with them is to pray with them and pray for them. And so could we just uh, pause as, as we get ready to move further in our worshiping? Could we pause and could we pray? And could we just thank God for the work he is doing and the workers who are out there who are declaring and demonstrating the goodness of Jesus all around the world. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that your name is being lifted up and even a worldwide pandemic wouldn't shut you down. And Lord, we thank you for these faithful workers who, whether they're still on the field or whether they've had to come home, they've stayed faithful to do the work that you've called them to do. And Lord, you bless that. And people have come to know you and people have come to be, to be followers of Jesus uh, because of that. So Lord, we just pray, would you teach us to continue to be obedient, to listen, to move in response to your spirit and to be a part of the work that you've begun a long time ago and that you're continuing today. May you be honored and glorified as we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.
confession here in this place. We come before you in need of you. We love what you offer, but we need you. Mm-hmm. Presence, closeness, relationship. So I pray now in this space that whatever it is that is standing in between our hearts and our minds and eyes from seeing and knowing you more fully, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would convict us of those things. Call us to repentance from those things so that we can follow hard after you. Jesus Christ, who is resurrected. 
for joining us again here live at 5. If you've been with us here throughout Acts, we have been doing, um, excuse me, throughout August, we have been doing a, a stone skip through this wonderful book of Acts, this, this story of how God calls outcasts and sends them to the outcasts, how he calls the marginalized and he actually sends them to the margins or maybe some mosaic modern-day language. He calls people that are broken and he makes them matter, glorifying God by sending them to broken-hearted people and seeing lives, seeing cities, even seeing countries transformed by the power of the gospel. Somebody was going to ask you, how do you summarize the book of Acts? Uh, Acts 1-8 would be a great place to start, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the book is actually built in that kind of expansion plan. And I'm intrigued and I'm inspired and maybe even my, my epic mode to think about, wow, the cities change, the, the countries that are changed. Well, tonight... 
Tonight's going to look a little different as we look at the church of Philippi from Acts 16. We're actually going to see what happens when individuals are changed by the power of the gospel. Because that's where the life change, that's where the practicality for you and for me, that's where it lives in the conversations between broken, marginalized people like you and like me. So tonight we'll see the accounts of two lives that have been transformed through the simple yet strategic work by normal people devoted to God and called to be devoted to others. And I'm so excited to, to read and teach through these stories with you. One of which, because the first story from, from Acts 16, 11 through 15, it is the namesake for our third child. She's only nine months old. It is the story of sweet Lydia. So go with me there to Acts 16. We'll start in verse 11. It says this, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, Paul uh, seemed throughout Acts and the letters, he seemed to have almost a, a, a missional strategy, if you would. He would go to the Jews and where they hang out, and he would go to the Gentiles to where they hang out. Now, typically the Jews, they would meet in the temple, uh, and the Gentiles would be everywhere. And here's the question, which one is this? Well, the facts of the time were that it would take 10 faithful Jewish men in any city to warrant a Jewish temple. Here is a gathering that is not men. It's not in a building. No, it's women meeting to pray by water. And so in this case, when there is no temple, you would go, Paul would go to a place where you would suppose that people of religious commonality gathered. And the tradition was that was by the side of water. And so at that, at that, at that side of the riverside, we have this woman named Lydia who's in town on business. It says that she's from a city called Thyatira. Uh, it's a hometown uh, in, in the province of Asia, a city that was famous for its purple fabrics. Now in the Roman period, uh, purple was considered the most precious of all the colors. Thus, here's what we can kind of deduct from this, is that Lydia dealt with an exclusive, affluent clientele. We have a woman from a foreign land who was very wealthy and dealt with very wealthy people. Now, I think this is fascinating. If you know anything about the story of Acts, and particularly Acts 16, right in the beginning of this chapter is the Macedonian call where it says that Paul, with his heart, with his, with his followers, his heart to go and plant churches, it says that, that Asia was closed to him. And we're not given any lead as to why. Was it because there was a tree across the road to Asia? Was it the spirit that compelled him? Was it circumstance? Was it crisis? What was it that closed the doors to Asia? And yet here we see once again that God's ways, they're not our ways. And in my own evangelistic wonderings, I may ask, why this, why now? Why the closed door to Asia, except now we see a woman from Asia, her heart being opened. Maybe the why this, why now is simply that God would begin a deconstruction process through the gospel of elitism, and sexism, the fact that this city to be won by the gospel would begin through a woman that's not from the city, a foreigner, and a, and a group of women gathering together 
by a stream to pray. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to understand. But I think it's important to hear this phrase in the context of what comes right before it. It's proceeded with, she was recognized as a worshiper of God. And I hope as you read in your Bible along, I put, you, put a question mark. How can she be a worshiper of God and yet her heart be opened? It makes me ponder and wonder how many even listening right now, you might know deep within your heart that, that you value a Godward reputation, maybe even a, a, a godly recognition. Yet has your heart truly been open through the work of Jesus, the power of the gospel, that you're a sinner in need of a savior? Many of us, we have been morally influenced through our upbringing or even our, 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 our where we live in the context of our country. Yet has your heart truly been transformed? I'm inspired by a God. Exodus 34, as he describes himself, God says that he is abounding in grace and mercy. And throughout the entire Bible, he describes his heart as one that pursues our heart. John 6 says he draws the heart. Mark 6 says that he is gentle and lowly of heart or accessible of heart. 1 Thessalonians 2 says he examines the heart. Jeremiah 31, that his heart yearns for our heart. And here, that he loves so much that he would open Lydia's heart. What a beautiful sign of grace and mercy. What an invitation to be loved by God. There's more to her story that we're going to come back to later. But, but next, I want to jump to this next story, this story uh, about the jailer. Now, there, there's a story that preludes the story of the jailer. In fact, uh, Paul and Silas, they're walking through the street and it says that there's a demon-possessed girl, uh, a, a, a slave who's owned by her masters that are getting wealthy off of her predictions. And she's following them through the street for many days, it says, announcing not as an advocate of their ministry, although that's what it first appears, but almost more as a nuisance. Uh, I, I picture going into a discipleship or a counseling appointment and somebody behind me says, uh, to the breakfast place that I'm walking into. Matt's coming in. He's about to pray. Entering Matt, who's about to counsel. Hey, everybody, listen up. Here's Matt. He's about to preach. And at some point, like Paul, that would grow very, very annoying. And so almost humorously, Paul just turns around and he says, enough, demon, by the power of Jesus' name, come out of her. And because of that, the local city, the local owners of the slave, their wealth is going to be impacted. And so they throw Paul and Silas into jail. It seems, though, like a story that sets up this second story. The story about the jailer. Let's read from verses 25 to 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself! We're here! And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
So if Lydia came from the top end of the, the social scale and the demon-possessed slave girl from, from the bottom, now this Roman guard, who would typically would be a retired Roman army, he was one of the sturdy middle class who made up the, 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 the Roman civil service. And, and in, in this way, you see really the whole gamut of society being complete, strategically chosen for the early church to see and read. We have to think that there is an intent to represent such diversity from women to men, multiple races, multiple economic status with the reminder that God sees no distinction. No, in fact, we all, we all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus sends, uh, God sends his son Jesus to rescue all and invites us. He invites us, those who believe, to see them as Jesus does, as people in desperate need of a savior. And apparently the evangelistic strategy for the jailer goes something like this. He had heard them pray. He had heard them sing. He'd heard the message. Yet God caused, he allowed a crisis in the form of an earthquake to pave the way for a door of hope to fling open. My devotional reflection, really this whole summer, I've shared it in Matt chats, I've shared it in different sermons, but it has just been so marinating to my heart, causing me to constantly meditate on, on the goodness and the plan and the kind of the why this, why now aspect of God. And it comes from Hosea 2, and it talks about how, how God leads her into the wilderness so that he can speak tenderly to her or, or literally speak tenderly to her heart, connect with her heart. And then it says, I will make the valley of Accor or the valley of trouble, translated, into a door of hope. It seems the story of the Bible again and again and again and again is that God, his ways are not our ways. And that he would actually allow a sense of crisis to create within us a need. That finally our ears would perk up, our eyes would pop open, and our heart could potentially, by God's abounding grace and mercy, be open to hear. I just love Paul's almost missional posture uh, to grow where he's planted. And it just so happens that he's planted in chains. I picture him and Silas walking into the jail cell, not grumbling, not saying, woe is me, but looking in and going, this is great. They're going to chain us to the guards. They're going to chain us to the other prisoners. We can say, we can sing, we can pray anything we want. They can't get away from us. What an opportunity. Now we've been in a similar opportunity. Although I wonder if you would see the last six months as opportunistic. You know, the Psalms, they describe seasons of hurt and pain and crisis like, like you're drowning and waves and waves continue to push you under to the undertow again. And I bet in all the things, it seems like about on a two-week wave rotation, something else come that polarizes our society, polarizes our families, polarizes even our church, drowning us. And I doubt that many of us would say as Christians we're being persecuted right now. Maybe some of us would be vulnerable enough, bold enough to say what we're chained to is our fear or maybe chained to our apathy. But here's the opportunity. The last six months has been a ripe season for heart change. The crisis, the wave after wave has made people, those who don't know Jesus, whose hearts have not been fully open, asking, questioning, wondering why people that are hopeless, that are separate, that are isolated, that are without God, looking for the hope to be rescued. And why this, why now? 
again, in my evangelistic experience, so often it's not having the perfect articulated uh, defense or, or statement or theory or, or, or a way to convince somebody with, with wise and clever words. Rather, the clearest and best opportunities, the open doors of hope to the gospel, come through crisis. When people are hurting, it is responding and it is being available in crisis. It's validating the crisis. It's empathizing. It's stepping into their mess and saying, I have been hopeless too, yet I have found hope. And giving the margin to be there with them in it. I just picture the jailer watching out of the corner of his eye, hearing the message, and then experiencing heart change for himself. Now, in these two stories, we have a lot of differences that I think show significant value, but there's also some similarities. Similarities of what happens next that can really practically guide us. So uh, there's a few that I just want to walk you through. Here's the first one. The first one is the plan to pray. You see it as they're on their way to Lydia. They're looking for the place of prayer. You see it with the slave girl, the demon possessed. They're on their way to pray. You see it as they're in shackles, chained up with the jailer, that they're singing and they're praying. That prayer proceeds everything. So often we make prayer just, just the closing note or the final bullet point. But what if prayer was our strategy? What if we actually started with the place of God, I am unable. And that alone, that humbling effect is a statement of, and God, you are able. And I submit myself to how you are working. So my question to you would be, not are you praying? The question is, what is your plan for prayer? What prayer are you on your way to? A second reflection, when both Lydia and the jailer when their hearts were transformed by the gospel, both of them were baptized. And I think there's something significant here. Their faith was made public. You know, at Mosaic, if you're, if you're new to the church or new to Mosaic, we really celebrate often two sacred moments or what we call sacraments, baptism and communion. And baptism is the experience of one becoming part of many, where they go underneath the water, where they're submerged, dead to their old self, and as a symbol, living, uh, risen to walk to the newness of life. And the body cheers as this individual becomes a part of the family of God through this symbol. Communion, on the other hand, follows up baptism where many celebrate being one. They take the body and the blood of Christ. They celebrate by this, by the work of Jesus. We remember his work. We remember what we're a part of. And so baptism here for these people, this is something new. This is something transformational. It's a symbol both of the inward change, but also their outward commitment to the church. They're becoming a part of something bigger. They're becoming a part of a community. Third reflection. I love this. The, the ministry at home. There's this phrase, they and their household. Don't get stuck too much when it says that when, when the jailer or Lydia became believers, that they and their household were, were baptized and saved immediately. I don't think because Lydia prayed to receive Christ that automatically the whole family was counted in on that as well. I think we miss a little bit of the timeline. I think we miss that Lydia and the jailer, their first missionary experience is going home. I pictured their kids, their spouses looking at them and saying, you have changed. What is going on? And immediately they are given the platform, the opportunity to preach the gospel and talk about how God opened their heart, loosened their chains, and changed them from the inside out. You know, with all the losses of the last six months, one of the gains that I've heard again and again and again is, is family time. The opportunity to eat together, to be together. And if right now you're feeling a little bit of almost this regret, like, oh, I didn't disciple enough. I didn't gospel enough. I didn't. Then today is the first day for you to see that your call as a disciple maker, your call as a missional leader, it starts in your home. 
And then lastly, we just see this overflowing effect that we see so often in scripture. That when Jesus changes our hearts, we actually start to see the world differently. We start to live and act differently. And here it seems like for this this wealthy trader, this merchant from another land, or this middle-class Roman soldier, they both become radically hospitable. They both clean their wounds and they feed them and they beg them to stay and be a part to connect, to actually use the things that that they have been given in home and resources to be a blessing. You know, as we think about church, it's easy just to get pigeonholed into 90 minutes on a Saturday night, the big gathering. But I think this is another testament. This is another example. The church is about the disciple-making communities. It's about celebrating through gathering, singing and the teaching of the word and connecting in liturgy. But the life, the culture of our church lives in the disciple-making community scattered across Northwest Arkansas. And it happens by taking a look at what God has given you, whether it's a home or a driveway or food or talents or resources, and it's using them for gospel declaration and gospel good. Hey, like we've been doing every week throughout this series, uh, this series on the church in August, we just want to close our time. We know that a lot of you are sitting with your family right now. And as we close uh, with these questions, just pull, stay together, pull together for just a few minutes to ask these questions. Or if you're sitting and watching with your disciple-making community, we love that. Use these questions as a guide to stir your affections to Jesus and to send you out to where you live, work, and play. Let me read them over you. Uh, You can choose to pause and answer one at a time or answer them later. Here's the first question. Share of an experience where you were witness to God opening hearts or loosening chains. What of these Acts 16 stories resonate from your experiences? Question two. It took the threat of crisis for the jailer to respond. How have you Or could you capitalize on this current season of crisis for gospel redemptive opportunities? Hey, let me just speak this over you. If you're listening to this and you feel your heart being drawn to God, if you feel him yearning for you, if you feel a connection you've never felt before, then I invite you to respond like Lydia did. Respond like the jailer did. That you too would believe that God saves sinners through Jesus, which you are one. Not just a sinner, but has the hope of grace applying to you, through you, and over you. And that you would respond to Jesus, giving your life, your heart, you transformed whole reality to know him and love him. Let's pray. And then we're going to hear from our directional leader, Mickey Rapier. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to hear these stories about these two individuals. You changed their hearts. And you actually used some very average men in Paul and Silas to do it. And again and again and again, I'm just, I'm wowed by the fact that, that you would transform hearts, but that also that you would include us in that journey. You would welcome us into that process. And I pray for every listener of this message tonight, everyone who has their Bibles open on their lap, gathered in whatever family or community their context is. Lord, would we see the places that you've planted us as opportunity? not as walls, not as problems, not as issues, but as opportunity to bring the gospel, to make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We know it is only by your power, through your son Jesus' work, and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that this is possible. And in this we hope and we pray. Amen. Hello, Fellowship family. The elders have determined that we will open our campuses to services on Labor Day weekend, September 4th through 6th. Since the middle of March, you have been incredibly patient, encouraging, generous, and understanding 
during this most difficult worldwide crisis. We know it isn't over, but as hospitalizations began to decline in Northwest Arkansas recently, the elders decided we could safely open our doors again with some restrictions in place. Remember, our buildings were closed, but you, the church, never skipped a beat in being the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus in our region. In a few moments, our congregational leaders will share plans and instructions for those who wish to attend services in the coming weeks. As good neighbors, we will cooperate with state and local officials and follow CDC guidelines for the protection of all. We know that some of you won't feel comfortable attending services yet, and that's okay. Others have underlying health issues that require staying home out of necessity. Well, rest assured, we are now capable of live streaming our services each week, and we will do our best to serve you well. Never forget, God is in control. Bless you all. So Mosaic, on behalf of the staff team, on behalf of myself, uh, we can say we are looking forward uh, to gathering again. We're looking forward to the opportunity of, of the word being preached, uh, of singing, of hearing each other's voices. Uh, and, and there's some guidelines, though, that we just want to begin the process of informing you uh, so that you know what to expect. Uh, so we will be back as of September 5th, uh, meeting at 5 p.m. and at 6.45 p.m., uh, up at Fellowship Bible Church campus in, in the Adult Worship Center. Uh, if you are at risk or if you are unable, uh, we just want to encourage you to embrace church at home, uh, whatever that looks like. If it's with your family, if it's with your disciple-making communities, if with yourself on, on your phone or laptop for a season. Uh, we will still be virtually live at 5 uh, and we will provide that for the foreseeable future. So, so if you're not able to come and join us in the gathering, we want you to gather with us virtually. Uh, student and children, you are included all the way birth, all the way up through 18. We do want to welcome you back, although we will not have children or student classes. We will all be together in the adult worship center for this phase one of reentry back into church. Uh, we are going to ask that you go online to the Mosaic webpage uh, and you make a reservation for which, uh, which service that you're going to be worshiping with us. The staff, uh, we are going to make everything that we can do. We are going to fight hard to make it as clean, as safe, as appropriate as possible. Uh, we're going to take our congregation seats that have 1,200 and we're going to pull it down to 350 so that we can stay six feet socially distanced. Uh, we're going to require masks, not from just from the beginning, but throughout the entirety of the service. Uh, we're going to pay special attention to the entrance and the exit points and the sanitation stations and, and all the different ways that we can just be above and beyond cautious. Ways that honestly are going to feel a little bit new, uh, but we're going to go above and beyond to just care for your safety and make sure that that's a priority. Um, we're going to unpack this more in, in, in the weeks to come, and we just want to encourage you to follow social media. Uh, keep watching these services online up until September 5th and beyond so that you can see more videos that might give you even a little bit more into what to expect. Uh, and if I can just close with this thought, um, I am very excited. I'm excited for September 5th to come. But I want to be specific with my words. I would not say I'm excited to get back to church, which is an easy way to say it because honestly, we're not getting back to church if we are the church. We are the body. And never in our history have we had more of a real opportunity to embody an early church, an Acts style of church platform. There's a song from the 90s uh, that Matt Redmond sung that, that, that is called I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. The story behind the song is that the church, while they were having large-scale kind of epic proportion worship influence as a church itself, they were becoming stagnant and stale. So the leadership team, they removed all forms of singing. And the goal was to return them to the actual heart it's all about you. And the first song when they returned was we are coming back to the heart of worship. Maybe this is our moment for us. 
Maybe this is God's allowing us to experience crisis to bring us back to those disciple-making vision that Jesus gave us to be a people living by the word, living as one and living as sin, to be a people that reproduce reproducers through disciple-making communities. You know, for 40 years, the, the mission and the vision of fellowship, it's never been about a seeding capacity. If we are only seeding capacity, we are selling ourselves far short to be the heart and soul that, that, that reaches Northwest Arkansas. We're not about seeding capacity, but instead we are about sending capacity. So yes, we're excited about singing. Yes, we're excited about air high fives or, 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 or wing high fives or six feet away convos. Yes, I am excited about preaching to you and not an empty room of chairs and just a camera. But you know what I'm most excited about? Is that over the course of the last six months, last March, we measured that we had 45 disciple-making communities when COVID hit. This week, we looked again, and 101 are registered and ready to roll for this fall. Friends, if you are not being a part of a disciple-making community, you are choosing to not be a part of the heartbeat of Mosaic. You're choosing to not be a part of so much of the rhythm, so much of the value, so much of the life change. And so we just encourage you to win the heart and soul of Northwest Arkansas. It begins in very real, very personal, real life people conversations, just like it did in Acts 16. Mosaic, we love you, we're praying for you, and we are looking forward to seeing you. Good night.